I think it's about being moved. And what moves me and what moves you will be different from somebody else. But for me, it, it, it means finding pictures that have psychological charge uh, that, that make you feel a little bit about what it means to be alive, that, that you learn from, that you interact with, that, that play with your emotions. So, uh, you know, it's a very imperfect standard. This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today, I got to warn you, we're doing something I'm really looking forward to. And I got to tell you a story before we even get to our guest. A couple years ago, I had the good fortune to be in London, and I was not happy one day because it dawned on me that I was leaving two days before a wonderful exhibition opened at the National Portrait Gallery. There was this exhibition called Victorian Giants, and I really wanted to see it, but I couldn't extend my stay, and I simply missed it. And when I got back to the States, I suddenly became really, really happy that I missed this exhibition because I would have gone, I would have looked at the images, I would have thought this is the coolest thing ever, and I would have walked out. Because I missed the exhibition, I bought the exhibition catalog. And by catalog, I don't mean a little brochure. I mean a big, scholarly, wonderful book. And the book is by Philip Proger. And I got blown out of my chair. This was the most wonderful look at an aspect of photographic history that I had ever read. And ever since then, I have been a fan of Philip's work. He is an art historian specializing in photography, and his work work is absolutely brilliant. He's been the head of photographs at the National Portrait Gallery, as I said. Uh, He's the founding curator of photography at the Peabody Essex Museum, currently the executive director of curatorial exhibitions in Pasadena, California. And for my thinking anyway, he is the most interesting historian critic working in photography today. Philip, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, after that introduction, I'm doing great. (laughs) Well, I've never been so glad to miss an exhibition in my life because I know for a fact I wouldn't have bought the book having seen the pictures. But you, you've you got a career that is just something to be jealous for. I mean, you began at the Hong Kong Art Center as, as a lecturer, as a teacher there, uh, Stanford, St. Louis Museum, you know, all over the place. Bring us up to speed. How in the world did you get interested in art history? And what drew you to photography? Well, you know, it's funny because my father was uh, an amateur photographer and he always had a darkroom. I think the first time he let me into the darkroom was when I was about two years old, something like that. And I've always had the sort of smell of acetic acid in my nostril. <laughs> but that was always my dad's thing. I, I was never interested in doing it because it was him. And, and as much as I loved him, you know, he... Uh, he had his own world, and I wanted to do something different. It wasn't mm-hmm. until later in life that I realized that I could uh, have a career in photography myself and to make it my profession. But it wasn't a, a straight line. You know, my friend Charlotte Cotton, I remember her telling me that when she was a little girl, she knew she wanted to be a photography curator, and she's been working to do that ever since. I was not that way. When I was a kid, I had no idea where I was going or what I was going to do. 
I fell in love with art. Initially, I fell in love with uh, Chinese landscape painting. When I was a kid, I was living in Hong Kong. That was just so exciting to me. And from there, I kind of moved on to British romantic watercolors and uh, wonderful landscapes and eventually landscape photography. Uh, it's really hard to go back and track that path. But um, in the end, uh, I found my feet and I ended up having a, a career in, in photography that's still going. <laughs> well, no, boy, is, is it going. I should tell everyone, you've got a brand new book out. And that's re really our subject today. Uh, it's called An Alter Alternative History of Photography. And it's getting all sorts of love out there. Um, ICP, the International Center for Photography, named it one of their top 10 photo books of 2022. Colossal named it one of their 10 favorite art books of the year. The Italian magazine Icon you know, said that it was one of their best books. The list just goes on and on. History Today named it you know, one of the books of the year, you you seem to have a knack for basically reorienting everything that we think we know about photography. And I, I want to get to the alternative history pretty quick, but I, I do want to go back to the book that introduced me to your work, and, and there's many, many others, folks. We're going to get to those, too. Um, and this is the Victorian Giants book, because one of the things, one of the founding questions then important back then and important now for a different reason, is the, you know, the, the basic question of, is photography art? Tell me about the people who were wrestling with that way back in the early days of photography. Yeah, it's, I really appreciate your introduction and the way that you're describing my work, because in a way, it's how I think about it. I'm just one voice among thousands, but I, I do feel like we have taken a lot as read in the history of photography. And there's much more that we can do to kind of tease out different traditions and different ways of thinking about photography. Uh, Victorian Giants was a case where we went back to almost the origins of photography itself, uh, especially in Britain, and a group of four photographers who had almost nothing in common except for the fact that they were all working at the same time, doing similar kinds of work and thinking about how photography could be thought of as an art form. And those were uh, Oscar Relander, Clementina Haywarden, Julie Margaret Cameron, and Lewis Carroll. So two mm -hmm. men and two women, uh, each of whom knew each other. They knew about each other's work. They influenced each other. And uh, they were sort of the first to take a stab at what photography could be in the art world. And, and people were resisting art. They, they, they said it was the poor cousin to painting. They, they, it, had, it really had no artistic promise in and of itself, right? Well, there were, there were factions, you know, and some people were pro-art and some just felt that photography should be its own thing. And some people felt that photography uh, really was a, a lesser form of expression. And what's really remarkable is that um, all of those opinions, they weren't just public opinions. They were opinions in the art world uh, mm -hmm. and, and in the photography world. So you had photographers who were standing up and saying, no, no, no. There's, there's no artistic potential for this. This is just a recording document. <laughs> oh, my. Well, everybody, you got to go get Victorian Giants. It, it's a hell of a book. And, and, and I'm, I'm still going back to it every now and then. There's, there's that marvelous picture, The Two Ways of Life by Oscar Elander, which is 32 negatives to make this picture. It, it's still inspiring and daunting. But 
fast forward now to today, because what we have, or what I have on my desk, uh, just came out last November, is The Alternative History. And this book is knocking my socks off. So you tell a great story about how the idea of this book first came into your head. Yeah, years ago when I was working at the Peabody Essex Museum, I was approached by a group of uh, philanthropists from Korea, and they had the idea to do a Korean history of photography, or I should say a history of photography in Korea. And um, they approached me, and, and it seems kind of weird because I don't speak Korean, and I don't have a special uh, expertise in, in Korean photography or Korean history. Uh, but I got thinking about it, you know, how, how could I write a history like that? What would it look like? How would I approach it? In the end, it didn't work out and I, I ended up not doing it. Uh, but it got me thinking about these kinds of histories and how they're written and, and how people go about it. And I just thought, you know, all the histories that have been handed down to us have similar kinds of concerns and they were done at a place and time and with certain kinds of motivation. Uh, and what if we look back at those and thought about it with fresh eyes and, and tried to incorporate, especially now, today, a fair representation of, fairer, I should say, representation mm -hmm. of women, more diversity in terms of uh, political expression, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of geography. In our new alternative history, we have uh, photographers from New Zealand and from Uzbekistan alongside, you know, Ansel Adams, Edward West, and Diane Arbus. So some of the old favorites. But to provide a, a, a new context, a new way of thinking, and, and open things up so that photography feels more inclusive and welcoming. Mm -hmm. Do you think early histories of any movement are, you know, not intentionally, but almost by default, sort of a colonial enterprise? Um, not just colonial, I would say that they absorb all the biases of the culture at that particular time. And no matter how uh, enlightened the writer was or, um, you know, how pure their intentions, inevitably, those histories are histories uh, of their time. You know, we, we look at things like um, uh, Helmut Gernsheim's history or Beaumont Newhall's history as almost like founding documents and they have a kind of canonical feel to them. But one of the things I tried to do in the book is it's just talk a little bit about how those histories arrived and what motivated them. And uh, when we look at them now, what kinds of things are missing and why are they missing? And um, I think it's, it's good to be uh, knowing about what's been handed down to you and, and how it was derived so that you can come up with new ways of thinking about things and, and recognize the limitations. And that's not to mm -hmm. put, um, put uh, Beaumont Newhall or Helmut Gernsheim on, on their back heels. Uh, those are incredible histories. And I could never do something as incredible as, as those authors did. And I recognize that. But they were still products of their time. And we need to think of them that way. Very much. And, you know, my colleagues here at the college where I teach in the history department, you know, they describe, you know, the, the, the act of doing history as almost an activist act because they are always reinterpreting, always asking new questions and, and trying to figure out, you know, what 40 years from now you and I are going to be looking at ourselves thinking, what the hell was I thinking? And reinventing just about everything. Photography is often described as being very democratic, but 
the the display of photography is not. You make some really interesting points about the role of museums, of money, in how photography actually gets to be uh, canonized, for lack of a better term, or even just published. What, what is the role of, of the museum? What is the role of economics in our understanding of the history of photography? I, that's such a huge question. I, we could do a whole... In 25 words or less. <laughs> we could do a whole <laughs> session on that. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have been in some really wonderful museums uh, over the course of my career, and I've been at those acquisitions meetings where I was either listening to other curators pitching things for the collection, or I was uh, myself advocating for things to go in the collection. And, um, you know, we never had all the money in the world uh, no matter right. where I was. And um, we had to think about what we accepted and what we didn't accept based on the kind of offers that were coming in. So that's the first stage really is what were the offers coming in? It's not like a curator just has carte blanche to go out in the world and say, you know, I really want to have a Joel Meyerowitz photograph. So let's go get a Joel Meyerowitz photograph. Sometimes that happens, uh, but very rarely because the funds are so limited. So what ends up happening is uh, a philanthropist will come to you and God bless them for what they do. But they'll say, uh, you know, I don't have a Joel Meyerowitz photograph, but I do have a Robert Frank. Do you want to have the Robert Frank photograph? And then the conversation becomes, <clears throat> is this representative of Robert Frank? Do we have other Robert Franks in the collection? Does this complement it or is it, uh, does it go off on a tangent? Are we likely to use it? Uh, will it go on display? But then there's sort of a second tier of questions that have to do with the exchange. Should we make this donor happy? If we make this donor happy and he gives us a Robert Frank, maybe he'll give us a, a Diane Arbus down the road. It, it's it's so complicated, and it's so um, I don't want to say tainted, but you know, it's it's not a pure exchange. It's not just a question of uh, you want something, you preserve it for the for cultural history purposes, you use it. No, there's a lot more that goes into it, and I was trying to raise that question because it also affects the histories. It, it affects right. what ends up in the books. And um, that's something that we need to be very aware of. And, and we also have a situation where you've got hundreds of galleries that are advocating for their artists. And they want their artists to be in the histories because that legitimizes them and, and has the potential to raise the value of their work. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not a static thing. It's very dynamic. And there's almost like a battle going on all the time over who's got to get, going to get attention and who's going to get praise. It, it's really fascinating, but it's also, you know, it's a little dirty. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it is, and it, it's almost necessary, you know, but not necessary. Um, you, I, I'm, again, you write so well, and you tell stories so well. I'm looking at the introduction to alternative history right now, and I'm, I'm just amazed that you decide, okay, we're, we're going to bring some light. We're going to give some voice to all of these people, not all, but a great many of the people who um, were, are underrepresented in the existing histories. But we're talking pre-digital here. We're, 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 you can't just go to Instagram and look for people um, you know, that, that haven't had applause yet. You had to go find the artifacts. You had to go find the prints and, and discover the names of the people whose prints you were going to go search. That seems so daunting, it's impossible. So, I mean, t tell me about, you know, the Tuesday night looking at the cup of coffee thinking, how in the world am I going to do this? And then tell me the process of actually finding the stuff. 
Well, I guess the first thing to say is that it's not a comprehensive history. And, uh, you know, we never set out uh, uh, working with my friend Graham Howe, who was uh, instrumental in putting the collection together. We never set out to tell the history. Uh, but we were also, we were both very experienced in the photography field, and there were certain things that we recognized, certain artists who we knew were not getting a fair shake, uh, certain parts of the world that um, hadn't been examined very well. And mm-hmm. so it was a question of starting with those, those threads that, that needed to be pulled a little bit. I'll give you an example. Um, it's always seemed to me very strange that when you look at the history of photography in the 1960s and 70s, you don't really see a whole lot about performance art, especially feminist performance art, performance art in that period. And that's because it's been kind of co-opted by the contemporary field. So you'll read a lot about great feminist performance artists if you pick up a contemporary history, but you won't mm-hmm. see it in the photography world because somehow it doesn't belong because it's in a different tradition. Well, to me, that's that's absolute rubbish. And if you were going to go back and, and um, pull out some of the great works from that time period, it would inevitably include and proudly include some incredible feminist work. And so that was an area where we just set out and said, look, how are we going to represent this? Uh, can we pull out a few pieces that at least show that tradition or highlight that tradition so that visitors understand that as part of the history of photography as well as part of the history of contemporary art and, and other things. But I'm still curious, how do you find it? I mean, do you, you know, say, hey, I'm going to New Zealand next week. I'm going to start, you know, mucking about museums and talking with people and, and going through dusty drawers. How do you actually find the work? You know, it wasn't that different from uh, being a curator in a museum. You know, if you decide that you want something, you kind of activate your network. So okay. it's, it's collectors that you know, it's dealers that you know, it's people who have things hidden under the bed. Uh, <laughs> what was really fun was that for a lot of dealers, when we got to them, we'd ask for certain kinds of things and they'd say, God, you know, I've had this thing for 20 years or 30 years. I bought it at auction. I never knew who the audience was for it, but here you come. And uh, so you know, we'll, I'll offer you this, which has had a, you know, it's been sitting in the bottom drawer for, for 20 or 30 years. We also looked at auction and uh, we traveled a fair bit. So, yeah, as I say, it's an imperfect process. I'm not even sure I could describe for you the the method of going after all this stuff. But some of it came from things that uh, I had worked on over the course of my career and had kind of footnoted in the back of my mind that one day I want to look at that again. And Mm -hmm. I've always had an interest in under-the-radar artists or underappreciated artists. So uh, there was a lot of stuff to draw from when we began. Oh, man. You found enough of this stuff that you decided to start your own collection. Yeah. So as you mentioned earlier, um, two years ago, I took over as uh, director of exhibitions for the traveling exhibitions company Curatorial in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And um, the CEO of Curatorial uh, is a fellow I mentioned before, Graham Howe. And we sort of sat down and started thinking about how to improve uh, the exhibitions program because it had been going for over 30 years. It had been thriving, but it seemed like there was even more we could do. And one of the things that we agreed was that um, being an independent company, not having our own facility with, uh, you know, 
air conditioning and climate control and all of that made it very, very difficult to create loans. So, you know, we, we know everybody, but if you go to MoMA as an independent curator and, and with an independent project and say, I'd like to borrow uh, for an exhibition I'm doing, the first thing they're going to ask is, what is the venue? And yeah. they're going to want to see reports on the facility and security and all of that good stuff. So we've done that. And, and there are times when that's been very successful, but we started to think, you know, what if we had our own collection? What if we built up a collection the way that we like it, uh, that we could use to create our own exhibitions. And uh, then we would kind of, I, I hate to put it in these terms, but it's like we control the material in a sense. Right. But I mean that in the best possible way. It's that, uh, uh, that that material is available to us and we don't have to worry about all the paperwork that goes along with, um, uh, with borrowing from institutions. So that was the origin of the thing. And um, we thought, you know, this is fun. We're going to build a collection the way that we would like to see it. And uh, that is the birth of alternative history. The show that, that's on now at the Photographer's Gallery in London uh, began at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto and will have uh, several more venues uh, before it's done. But uh, that is the basis for the book that we've been talking about, An Alternative History of Photography. Mm-hmm. All sorts of questions that, that you're making me think of here, everything from you know preserving of the actual artifacts to aesthetics. But Okay, so you've got this idea, and, and you're going to give voice to under-recognized artists. And you say here, um, in, in the introduction, you say, in short, we looked for pictures that told stories and have soul. Okay, that t- tell me what that means. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's about being moved. And what moves me and what moves you will be different from somebody else, but... For me, it, it, it means finding pictures that have psychological charge uh, that, that make you feel a little bit about what it means to be alive, that, that you learn from, that you interact with, that, that play with your emotions. So, uh, you know, it's a very imperfect standard in a way, but mm-hmm. it's also, for me, the ideal. That's what I would always like to see. I would always like to see pictures that... that touch me somehow and that make me feel let's take just a quick break we hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode the very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you and if that's the case you might want to have a look at frames quarterly printed photography magazine We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. Well, how, how does a historian approach this problem then? Because, you know, there are probably 17 million little Kodak carousel slide projector boxes uh, sitting in people's basements throughout the United States. And in the 1970s and 80s, they were mundane. Now they're vaguely interesting. 50 years from now, they're going to be priceless. How do you approach shifting cultural values when you say, I want something that's going to hit my emotions? Yeah, I mean, I'm a product of my time, just like uh, Beaumont Newhall and Helmut Gernsheim were. I'm sure that the things that touch me, some of them will touch someone 100 years from now, 
I know that because I look at some Victorian work and I'm touched in the same way that those people were touched. Uh, some of them will drift away. Some things uh, may not be as meaningful to future generations, but all I can do is the best I can do for the here and now and uh, for my audience, for listeners, for uh, the people who read the books that I'm involved with and uh, do the best that I can. I, I, I realize that uh, sometimes I'm going to fall short but for me, that, that, that's the standard that I set, and that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, I mean, I'm going through these um, images in alternative history, and I think you hit it on the nail. Um, the, these images, even for me now, have a kind of emotional uh, power to them, and I hope they did back then. Again, several things that I want to get to in just a moment, but tell me, I mean, there, there are some famous people in alternative history. There's some people that you say, okay, we decided not to include them because there's enough out there already. Tell me about some of the discoveries. Tell me about some of the, oh my heavens, I didn't know about this person images. Yeah, I mean, the one that I keep going back to is Una Garlic. And, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't, not a name that anyone, even uh, curators, have, would have on their, uh, the tip of their tongues. But, um, you know, she was the great New Zealand modernist photographer. Now, if somebody told you there was a great New Zealand modernist photographer, you'd probably be a little bit surprised. But um, the fact is, every country has its traditions and, and every country has sort of parallel developments in the history of photography. I learned this, um, you know, I had the good fortune uh, to be a fellow at the National Gallery of Canada for a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I realized that Canadians have their own perspective on modernism and late 19th century uh, photography and art in general. And it's perfectly valid. It's just not a history that we're taught. I mean, we might hear about the group of seven, but how many people know about John Vanderpant, who was the great, almost like Edward Weston figure of, of Canada? You know, that's, that's really powerful and really interesting, I think. And, and one of the missions embedded in this book was to kind of bring some of those traditions to light and, and have them in conversation in a way that they often are not. And how... How much does a historian try to defeat a, a kind of natural border mentality? Because I can tell you stuff about, you know, photography in the United States. I can't tell you a thing about photography in, say, Lithuania. Um, and not out of prejudice, but just out of it's not part of the American educational system, etc. You've gone clearly for a very global approach here. Your work, you know, overall tends to be very uh, border breaking. Is Is that part of the definition of art history, or is that something particular to your mission? I guess when it comes to photography, I'm someone who's drunk the Kool-Aid. So (laughs) I really believe in the democratizing potential of photography and especially living here and now in the 21st century, the ability of photography to cross borders um, and to have conversations between geographic regions that are otherwise isolated. But that's not new. It's really intense now in, in an era of, of digital photography and social media. But, you know, even going back to the 19th century, people exchanged photographs. They published them in books and magazines. It was, it was not exactly the same as the trajectory you saw in painting. Uh, paintings are harder to share in, in a way. But photography has sharing built into it from the very start. 
part of its DNA. So to me, to, to be true to the history means to be true to that fact. Do, do you think that that sharing aspect, is, I've, I've got a quote from your book here I'm going to read for you in a second. Do you think that sharing aspect has changed radically in the last 10 years with social media? It has intensified and it has become easier for amateur photographers to share, I think, than ever before. Another aspect of this that I find really fascinating, uh, especially in recent years, is the blurring, the increasing blur between still photography and video. And right. I wonder what the future for still photography will be, especially on these platforms down the road. But um, other than that, I, I don't think it's fundamentally changed. It's just amped up in a way that, you know, the early photographers could never have imagined. Well, I mean, let, let me read a, a quote from your own work here that that just absolutely struck me as, as dead on right and perhaps a major problem, too. When you say uh, photographs are more syntactical than ever before, meaning they depend on context, especially the pictures around them to convey meaning, whereas photographers once thought of their pictures as self-contained uh, on their own contemporary photographs are often fragmented and partial. For example, when Ansel Adams made a uh, Yosemite Valley landscape, he packed it full of everything a viewer would need to receive his message. Those messages might be open-ended or ambiguous, but all the viewer needed was there. Waterfall, mountains, shadow, or I'm sorry, meadow and clouds. Uh, Adams famously compared the negative to a musical score and the print to a performance. Contemporary artists see things differently. The image may be only a note, bright and shrill or low and moody, which finds its place alongside others in a push and pull of ideas and feelings designed to captivate and pique interest, but never fully resolve. Such pictures may seem to have been extracted from a film, but do not make sense on their own. They imply rather than tell a story, leaving gaps to be filled by the viewer. Has contemporary photograph become a photography of implication? Oh, I like that idea, the photography of implication. I'll have to think about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things powering this, and one of them is just the onslaught of imagery that we see now. Uh, it's very hard for an individual image to lay claim to being an authoritative picture when there's so much else around it. And part of what contemporary artists want to comment on is this onslaught of imagery. But the other is, is something that I alluded to earlier, and that is the increasing presence of video. And so right. the temporal element of still photography has been challenged. And, you know, what video essentially is, is a whole string of still photographs animated together. So you see step one, step two, step three, step four in a kind of temporal uh, representation of of whatever it is that that image or those series of images are trying to represent. So, uh, I mean, maybe I'm not describing it very well, but I think that this uh, this tension between video and still photography that is somewhat new, and uh, and I think it's finding expression in in contemporary work. It is. I mean, I, I was just thinking the other day because a friend of mine handed me her cell phone to show me a picture, and as she's handing it to me, she says, "Swipe left." In other words, look at 15 pictures. Don't just look at one. And, and it was not even thought about. That, that was just the default position. I'm showing you something more than a single image. Yeah, and this goes back to what actually is a really old idea in photography, and that is the notion of the series or the sequence. Mm -hmm. You can see it 
very clearly in Edward Mybridge's work in the 1870s and 80s. And that gets picked up by um, modernist photographers who love this idea of the series. And then you get grids on the wall in exhibitions. And there's lots of, of stages along the way that we can point to. But I think it's really interesting. I think this ambiguity of the individual photograph is one of the things that makes contemporary uh, photography so exciting. Um, I did a project with um, William Eggleston a few years ago, and yep. this became very, very clear to me as, as I was working on, on that project. And I went back and I looked at what John Sarkowski had written about Eggleston in uh, Eggleston's Guide, and a wonderful text, one of the uh, truly formative texts in the history of, of photography. And yet I thought that there was something about Eggleston's photographs that never had been quite grappled with, and that is this very thing we're describing now, the idea that somehow the photographs stand on their own, but they don't stand on their own. They ask a lot more questions than they answer, and they're kinda, they kind of beg the questions, sort of, what happened next? And uh, for that reason, I, I think of Eggleston as one of the real giants of contemporary photography because he really brought that to the fore and challenged people to think about that in new ways. And when I see a lot of contemporary work, not to take away from it at all, um, and the specialness of what many artists are doing, but I see an element of uh, Eggleston and a lot of contemporary work in that it doesn't really bring any resolution. In, in, to use mm-hmm. the metaphor that you quoted me on, um, you know, if Ansel Adams was creating a symphony in clearing winter storm, Eggleston is is in the business of making those notes, those those sonorous or <laughs> shrill notes, and then you have to make the music yourself. Well, now we we should tell everyone that you've got a wonderful book out there too, called Point William Eggleston Portraits, and so where you focus in on all of us, and you have another book called FaceTime: A History of the Photographic Portrait, um, and and it's worth noting that on on the FaceTime book you've got six pictures of, of, of the same two people, basically asking us to view them as, as a group instead of as the individual there. But I want, and I do want to ask about the history of the portrait, but is, is when you talk about implication or you talk about making the notes, are, are we really talking about a change in the way we understand the narrative potential of a single image? Uh, I'm not sure. I think you'd have to ask the artists who are making this work what their intention is and, and you know, audiences who receive this work, how do they think about it? Um, it's not for me to say, but I do think as an historian sitting outside of this and looking at it, uh, I, I see some shifts in the way we think about narrative, definitely. And, and it's as it should be. I mean, if, you know, if novelists were writing in the same way now as they did in Dickens's time, uh, <laughs> it would be rather worrying. There should be fresh approaches for fresh ways of thinking and fresh ways of living. Oh, it, it, absolutely. Um, I, I know as a viewer of um, images and of photography, I appreciate the narrative suggestion or impulse or whatever word you want to put in there. When I feel like I'm getting a significant moment of a story, that's when I seem to be responding most to uh, the work in front of me. But then, you know, maybe that's just all taste as well. Tell me about FaceTime. FaceTime is a project that kind of grew out of my time at the National Portrait Gallery, thinking about portrait photographs, how they're made, how they have been made in history. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a book about the progress of of portrait photography over time, but also just its fact, its existence. It's, uh, 
illogic sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, but always with the view of um, how do I capture what another person is like and what is it about that that means something to me. So as a photographer, as an audience, when we look at a portrait photograph, what do we see and, and how is that important and, and how does it resonate with us and how does a photographer set that up? One of the things that I um, talk about in the in the book is the fact that when you make a photograph, generally speaking, most um, most camera manufacturers recommend an exposure time, at least in traditional media, of a sixtieth or a thirtieth of a second. Right. Well, a sixtieth or a thirtieth of second of a second is only a tiny, tiny sliver of a human's existence on this planet. So what does that mean? What does it mean that I've isolated such a tiny sliver of a person's life and held that up as somehow emblematic of who they are and how I should feel about them? It's one of the most improbable feats in art that you could do that. I mean, at least a portraitist could take hours or days or weeks to make a portrait, but a photographer is confined to that very narrow sliver of time. How do they do it? And and why does it matter to us? I, I look at some of those great 19th century portraits um, where everybody looks like some version of, of the American Gothic painting. You know, absolutely rock solid, expressionless, um, and, and vaguely unhappy. And I keep thinking, you know, what what were they talking about during that session? How how was this whole art form even explained to them, or or the intent of the photographer? Those must have been fascinating conversations back then. Yeah, well, I think the first answer to your question is they probably didn't say anything because they were instructed <laughs> not to move their mouths, not to blink. Oh, yeah. Possibly, yep. you know, hold still. Uh, studios had um, head clamps and things at the most extreme uh, to keep people from blurring in the pictures because the exposures were so long. I have a couple of friends that do wet plate stuff. And so, yeah, they, they've got the, the head clamp to keep everybody st- still. Yeah, and you'd be amazed if you look at, at 19th century photographs especially in the 1850s and 60s. What's extraordinary is how often they're sitting in a chair or leaning against a wall or, or holding something in their hands. It, it's all, um, it, it looks like they're using props or they're being staged in a certain way, but it almost always has to do with keeping them still. Mm-hmm. So the way to uh, include those props that, in a way that looks natural, but at the same time helps the photographer to make a, a a sharp exposure. Um, that was sort of the art of the portraitist in the 19th century. You know, speaking, speaking of this is a good segue into another point that you make in alternative history, um, which the minute I read it, I said, of course, um, but you make a distinction that we should not conflate celebration of technological advance with a celebration of aesthetic vision. Do you think that's been a problem here up to now? Yeah, I do. I, I really think that um, the history of photography is the history of, for me, creative expression. And that creative expression is often governed by the kinds of tools, the, the restrictions, the limitations of the technology of the day. But I think we make a big mistake if we reduce the history of photography just to the history of technology. And um, I, I'm aware that there are a lot of gearheads out there who just love mm-hmm. to talk about f-stops and lenses and kinds of cameras and things like that. And I have some training in that. But 
you know, at the end of the day, if all the photographer is doing is activating a technology, then they're really not end, adding very much to photography or the conversation around it. To me, it's how you use those tools that's the most important and not the tools mm -hmm. themselves. So I was never interested in the alternative history of writing about you know, the transition from wet plate to dry plate technology or when color arrives, uh, incredibly important developments, no doubt about it. But that wasn't my take on it. What I wanted to know was when color arrived, what did photographers do? You know, yep. that when dry plate arrived, how was expression different? What was it they were trying to do before that they couldn't do and all of a sudden they could? Uh, to me, those are the interesting questions, not so much about technology itself. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going through the book, and I got to tell everybody, you need to get this book. It's organized. I mean, every page, just about every page, has a new artist on it with a little biographical or aesthetic uh, explanation along with them. But so many people in here I've, I've never heard of, and I'm now glad that I have, and so many ideas about their work as, an, as a Student of photography, it's completely expanded my world. As a photographer, it's expanded my imagination of what's possible and what traditions uh, I'm working in. It is one of those books that, you know, it, it, it's not a how-to manual. It, it's a think about this absolutely brilliant, brilliant piece of, of art history and work. Philip, this has been special. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.